The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Coming home is proudly supported by Kiwi Bank, the bank that's making Kiwi better off. If you have recently returned to Aotearoa and are looking for opportunities in life and business, a new start, or a safe place to re-establish roots, Kiwi Bank is here for you. Find out more at kiwibank.co.nz. In this series, we're meeting New Zealanders who are coming home. Some of them have been away for decades, others have just been at the beginning of their journey. We've been looking at the experiences and skills that they gained overseas and what prompted them to move and then pushed them back. In this episode, we're going to be asking what it's like to be back. And speaking from personal experience, it hasn't been easy. As we've spoken to these other returnees, we're starting to discover that actually coming back to New Zealand has been a lot harder than anyone anticipated. Really weird and disorienting. They're coming home to a period of heightened uncertainty. It's been tough on an emotional level. It's been tough on a professional level. There's no starter pack to moving home. (laughs) There's no 101 moving home for dummies book out there. And everyone's going to be obviously incredibly different. It's true that everyone we spoke to had a really different experience of moving back, which is to be expected. I mean, home means different things to different people. You know, they'll all have different and likely complex relationships with what they left behind. But there's one thing that everyone had in common, and that's a bumpy landing. Firstly, there's that obvious stumbling block, which is since June 2020, all returning New Zealanders have had to do a two-week quarantine under military surveillance. It's basically like expat purgatory. We actually asked Rachel Morris to keep an audio diary during her time in isolation. I'm looking out the window at the moment and I can obviously see I'm in Auckland. I can see the harbour from here and actually I can see a little bit of Devonport too. But otherwise I'm pretty much just living in a generic hotel room. Three times a day somebody leaves a brown paper bag with some food outside my door and More or less the high point is when I get to walk around in circles in a courtyard for half an hour or so. I can't even imagine what that's like to have made it all the way here. You know that you're physically back in Aotearoa, but you can't see any of your loved ones. We hopped onto Zoom with Rachel to have her tell us what it's been like. It's just really weird when you make this huge decision to move countries and you like pack up your apartment and say goodbye to like all your friends 
and then you're just in this little bubble you can't see the people that were part of the reason that you moved back I found that to be like quite surreal and strange and you just sort of find yourself thinking did I actually move back or do I just live in this hotel room now <laughs> and then the jet lag wore off and actually since then it's been really good yeah Rachel actually had quite a nice time it's a really nice hotel the food is way better than what I would be eating on a daily basis if I was responsible for you know doing my own cooking you're like allowed to just flow and be in that zone so thank you thank you to the ridges Marnie Turnbull, the sort of fintech wonder kid, had a quite an interesting take on the rejuvenating benefits of quarantine. Marnie doesn't have children. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Like, the idea of coming back and doing managed isolation on my own is, like, incredibly intoxicating. The idea of doing it with my kids is quite the opposite. That That's a vision of hell that... One you'd pay thousands to do and other thousands to avoid, right? <laughs> Had I not been stuck with my children, it might have been a good opportunity to just have some chill time. But I, I guess it's going to be different things for different people, right? Arguably, that was an amazing opportunity to ideate and reflect and actually inspire myself. It's kind of like a paid-for two-week Vipassana. FYI, Vipassana is often defined as a form of meditation that seeks insight into the true nature of reality. According to Wikipedia, I didn't just know that. I do love that positive spin on isolation, but Duncan. That doesn't really accurately map to your experience, right, Jane? You came home at a very specific point in the mm. pandemic, and I remember talking to you after you'd landed, and it really, really sounded super unpleasant what you went through. Yeah, yeah. We came back before the military quarantine. Uh, we were asked to self-quarantine, so we had to sort ourselves out. And everything was at such short notice. It felt all very, very heightened. It very much felt like we were fleeing. And it was very emotional and strange. And I think the hardest thing was expecting that feeling of being welcomed home with open arms and everyone just to gather us in like little chicks. But... Everyone else was reeling as well, so it was kind of every man for himself. The country's border closed to foreign travellers for the first time ever at midnight last night. There are now 14,552 confirmed cases of coronavirus. More than half of them are now outside Wuhan. The country's newest case of coronavirus is the first to be caught and transmitted in New Zealand that health officials know of. A man in his 40s is the first known to... I think I'll always remember that period in March where we had no idea how this was going to play out. There were thousands of people dying in Italy. It was on the ground in New Zealand and the whole country was acutely conscious that if it played out here like it was playing out elsewhere, we were going to have a major problem. And that's the kind of backdrop against which you were making your decision to, to return. Tell me how that worked, how you told your kids, how you discussed it as a family. I think that we didn't put that much thought into it, to be honest with you. It's easy in hindsight to look back and realise how massive that all was. But at the time, it still felt like quite disconnected from our community and it hadn't fully taken hold, but we could see that things were rapidly changing. And it really came down to seeing a couple of other 
New Zealand families who were committed to staying in the States, seeing online that they'd booked tickets to come home. And one of my good friends over there messaged and was like, we have got tickets and we're leaving tomorrow night. And I was like, that's just crazy. These were people I would have thought would be the last people to like cut and run. And yet here they were. We were only going to come back for a month originally, but I packed every suitcase we had kind of just in case. It was a real whirlwind. We definitely, we were running on adrenaline. The kids were fine. They were happy about the idea of going home and seeing everyone. Kids are very adaptable. So they definitely handled it better than than anyone else. So when you got back to New Zealand, where did you stay? We arranged to stay at my sister's holiday house, which we were so lucky and privileged to be able to have access to that. But when she let the next door neighbours know that her sister and her family were coming to stay... Those neighbours then sent an email around the neighbourhood trying to rally the troops to basically build a case to say, no, we don't want them staying here and that we would be putting everyone at risk. That was horrible. Like, we were exhausted and then suddenly we had nowhere to go. And I could see on their community page on Facebook that people were kind of getting really anxious about people from overseas coming along and spreading the great bug, which I mean, you know, it's a valid fear. But as returning New Zealanders who, I mean, I I think it's safe to say we fled the States to come home. And that was really a, a horrible, it wasn't a welcome. I have to say, after that initial tricky start, things have improved somewhat. (laughs) (laughs) I bullied you into giving me a job here at the spin-off, which I feel very privileged to have in the current climate. I didn't need much bullying, man. (laughs) You're pretty good at your job. (laughs) But it hasn't been so easy for everyone we spoke to. Yeah, the person who comes to mind here is, is Julia. I felt much more freedom when I was over in the US than I do back here at home. I miss being free to be myself. That seems tragic. What, what, what is it that drives that? Being a Samoan, Chinese, British, blend, hybrid individual, I'm constantly justifying my existence in rooms that were not meant for me. It's exhausting. You know, I didn't get questioned when I lived over in the US. And that's probably because no one even bloody well knew where New Zealand was, nor did they know where Samoa was. They honestly were just like, what? Is that part of? And I was like, no, it's not part of. Though it also meant that I wasn't walking with the intergenerational sort of stereotypes and stigmas that are placed on me led to me being able to just be. Whereas here it's like, well, you're brown, but you speak like that, but you're in that industry, but you're doing that, and you've had that experience, so that doesn't make sense. And you're female, and you're 27, and how does that work? And da-da-da-da. I'm just constantly putting myself up to be analysed. I've been kind of haunted by the way that she spoke about the trouble she had readapting to the culture here, just how different it is to that which she'd come from in the US. When I moved back, I was buzzing with energy and I was fresh. I just went, woohoo, let's go. But it felt like I had to shrink myself in order to fit in. One thing that I found really hard is that my own peer group were sort of trying to, I guess, guide me or raise awareness to my challenges that I will face if I come in hot out the gates without adapting myself 
to recognize my new audience. Even in my own culture at times, it was difficult because I don't always operate in the same way that others would in my Pacific culture. I'm not seen as very humble. And for me, I was like, this goes against what I believe in. Like, how are we meant to build a community that allows people to be themselves if yet we're oppressing our own selves because the way in which certain values should be embodied is fixed? That, that, that doesn't make sense. Mm. It's interesting when you're living overseas how you get so nostalgic for home and I think you start to look back with rose-tinted glasses quite a lot. And then you come back and you're like, oh, yeah, there's still some shit stuff as well, you know? I forgot about that stuff, but here it is. I don't know whether you can ever really plan for what it may feel like to move home. As much as you might try, I don't think you ever truly know until you land two feet on the ground. And then you move through the honeymoon phase and you're realising, oh no, this is legit, I'm home home. This is what home looks like. It involved a bit of disillusionment, it involved a little bit of anger at times and frustration. And even though I believe in being unapologetic, I believe in squashing tall poppy syndrome, when I'm back in a small country and I'm operating with six degrees of separation, then the fear creeps up. Then I'm like, oh man, what do I do? How do I move? How do I like share my truth? And with the repercussions of potentially being blacklisted. It's really pretty hard to be bold in New Zealand. It really is in the workplace, I think. And there's this fear that you're going to jeopardise your career prospects if you do so. I mean, and that's one of the things I like most about Julia is that she just doesn't hold back that where she senses that the room isn't ready for her or ready for what she's got to say, rather than having that temper down. She's like, well, I'm going to say this and just see how it lands. There's, a, I think, a, a really fascinating LinkedIn post that she wrote, which went pretty viral not long after she came back, that kind of speaks to exactly that notion. This is Julia reading that post. Too young to have done what I've done. I'm too brown for some rooms, too white for others. I'm too colourful, you know, I get mistaken as the intern, when really I'm, I've held like senior strategy positions. I don't fill a box, and yet I'm too threatening to make a box. I think those things that she highlighted, they weren't just like low-level annoyances, the kind that everyone has to go through. They were very real barriers to her entering the job market when she returned to New Zealand. I wish I counted all the rejections I had. It would have been an important piece of data I should have collected, but I haven't. Maybe I can go through and look at my trash. Because every time you get a rejection, you're like, nah, I don't want to look at it because that would make me feel bad. So I'm like, quickly, delete, delete, delete. But um, there was countless, countless rejections. And I remember one person, oh, you're just a bit too innovative for this role. And if we bring you into the company, you're going to bring a lot into the company and you'll do more, but then we'll have to go back and just hire that person for that role. So have you found work now? Didn't get my full-time gig, didn't get that, but I am freelancing, and that's been kind of fun. It's been really random. It's been through, like, word of mouth, which I've been very lucky about. It's quite interesting, that idea of finding work through word of mouth, because it maps to what Jared, the chief economist at Kiwi Bank, said, who arrived home a couple of years ago. I was out of work and couldn't find a job really hard. I did what I thought I should do, and I went to all the headhunters, 
And they turned around to me and said, you're going to have to get a job through your network. That's how things work in New Zealand. Whereas overseas, the headhunters have got a lot more prominence and their networks are a lot, I think, stronger than my experience. So I was here for a year, couldn't get anything, and then ended up getting another job for the company I had left in Australia and went back. Hang on, hold up. So Jared came back to New Zealand with this massive amount of overseas experience. Yeah, so he'd worked at JP Morgan, yeah. which is you know, one of the biggest sort of investment banks in the world, Credit Suisse. He'd worked in Sydney, in Singapore. He had a really specific skill set around interest rates, which are hugely, hugely important to banks in New Zealand. But he couldn't find a job. Could yeah. not find a job. He had to go back to Australia, which seems completely mad. What a missed opportunity for this country to pass up someone like Jared. And when he got his job in New Zealand, it wasn't because this country had a great system for identifying talent and deploying it in the right places. It was basically a complete fluke. His job in Australia, they flew him back to New Zealand to make a presentation to KiwiBank. And as I walked out, one of the traders at KiwiBank turned to me and said, oh, by the way, there's a job going here. Don't know if you're interested. I was like, oh, yeah, well, I'll, I'll give it a look. And that was it. So the headhunters were right. You only get jobs through your own kind of networks, in my area at least, but that's how it happened. And it took five years. I guess that the issue with that now is that a lot of those returning New Zealanders, if they've been away as long as you have or their skills are as narrow, your networks are fine if you're a, a lawyer or you're, you know, and you went through law school with a bunch of people. But yeah. if you've gone overseas and developed quite a, a specialist skill set, maybe the there isn't a like-for-like like job in New Zealand, those networks aren't, they, they just can't connect you to the right opportunity in the same way. If your experience has been more of a driver of your skill set than your education. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I come home and um, my mates that I went to school with, 10 close mates, you know, most of them are cops, one's a physio, a couple of them are, you know, lawyers, and what are they going to do for me to... How we get a gig as an economist. So, yeah, no, that my networks coming home were pretty slim. Let's discuss finding work through networks, Duncan. I don't think we should knock it too much. I mean, at times, you do procure the best talent because you've known them for 20 years, right, Jane? I do thank you for saying that. I am not trained in podcasting as such, and yet here I am, a podcast manager, because, well, no one's really trained in podcasting in this country, That's thankfully. That's the problem, we're flying the plane. I mean, I do think, though, that the New Zealand rely on the networks mentality. It's dangerous because your networks tend to be people you went to school with. People you went to school with tend to be broadly, culturally, demographically like you. Mm. Therefore, you often get workplaces where they you know, tend to all look and speak and see the world a particular way. And New Zealand suffers for that. I think that's kind of hard to deny at this point. Yeah, and it's just a bit crap for those people who have this amazing wealth of experience and, you know, they're turning up to job interviews, you know, on paper, the right person for the job. But old mate's got a friend from fifth form who did a BA and they'd quite like the job, so they're good at things. I do think there's also a bit of New Zealand self-consciousness there too, that... You see someone with this amazing CV and, you know, say you're the HR manager or the owner of a business and you kind of think, oh, my business is a bit shit. They're not going to want to come and 
They're going to see through They're going to see me for who I am. I can't possibly have a proper person, an adult, come in and, and see my shambles. So it's a business imposter syndrome. I think that that happens. I really do. I certainly experience it. But I think it is very sort of self-limiting. And more to the point, it's really, really bad for those who return because they don't end up working and giving back the way that they could. And I think the, the whole country suffers as a result. There's a discounting of what you've done overseas. Not many people can say they've got a demographer, but we've got a demographer. Here he is, Paul Spoonley. I just think that's a missed opportunity because these are people who've got a lot of experience and it should be regarded positively and it's not. While we've talked about them struggling perhaps to find work or for their experience to be appreciated by employers, the flip side of that is that perhaps they're being you know, snapped up by people and compromising the job prospects or the career trajectory of other resident New Zealanders who've been sticking around doing the hard yards and that kind of thing. And, and I'm not saying that that's my belief, but is that a concept that's out there? There are two broad issues about migrants, and we're, we're, I'm talking about both New Zealanders and, and non-New Zealanders coming here. One is the argument that they displace locals, and the other is that they depress wages of the locals. In neither case do we have good evidence that either is occurring. So when we went live with our first episode on Facebook, and I know we should never dive into the comments, I was really disappointed but perhaps not surprised to see so many people just saying, oh, these guys are coming in and taking our jobs and they're going to hike up the housing market, just all that stuff that you know people are thinking. But when you see it in black and white, especially in the context of what you know we believe is actually a very positive story and very good for the economy and very exciting for all of New Zealand, it's just like, damn, that's still there. People really believe that. It's a very pernicious thing, and I think... You can sort of understand it if you went for a job and you, know, you were shortlisted and then, say, a returnee got it. You might feel that quite deeply, but at the aggregate level, you don't see that. You actually see this as new demand coming into the economy. It creates more jobs because of the age and stage a lot of these people are at. There are issues with the housing market, but that's hardly the fault of a New Zealander who's just coming back to their homeland to live and work in. That's a bigger sort of social and governmental problem that needs addressing via other means. I mean, I don't want to say that there are no issues in terms of the impact on you know, the job market and so on. However, we've got to look at it as a net positive, look at all the factors involved, and I think it's pretty clear that it is a net positive thing. You know, the, the whole point of this podcast is that it's about what these people bring with them and the way that plugs into the extraordinary skills and talent and experience that we have here in New Zealand and that it does require us to let go of some of these long-running kind of historic prejudices that we have to the outsider, whether they be a New Zealander coming home or a migrant. Paul also mentioned another thing that could be making job hunting hard for returning New Zealanders and is kind of reminiscent of what happened with the global financial crisis back in 2008. During the GFC, we saw the job churn go way, way down, which meant that people were staying in their current jobs. And one of the effects of that is that the person coming into New Zealand would quite often be shut out of the labour market. I mean, it's still early yet, but I suspect that's true for COVID-19. If you've got a job, it's reasonably well-paying, why would you change it? So basically the job market's kind of locked up. 
people who've got good jobs are sticking with them. There's not a lot of the kind of mobility that keeps the labour market vibrant because there's a lot of fear. And yeah, that makes complete sense. But there's maybe something else going on here too. Here's Jared again. Right now, we've had an influx of Kiwis coming back because of the pandemic. They realise New Zealand's, you know, the best country in the world. They want to come home. But what are they coming home to? They're coming home to a period of heightened uncertainty. We're all expecting the unemployment rate to keep lifting, so businesses are nervous and shedding jobs. That dynamic makes it really, really tough for returning New Zealanders who are coming back to a labour market that is not as welcoming, as open, as ready for them as you'd hope. I know we've been having a lot of theoretical chat over the course of this podcast series, but this is the sticking point. This is a real problem if we don't get it right. If returning New Zealanders can't find work, we might lose them. Say a vaccine comes along and everything kind of writes itself over time. We might lose these people. If I can't make this work, I'm going to have to leave because I have to earn a living. In the next episode, we'll be looking into this more and asking why we should be working so hard to keep the returnees here. What the opportunity is for New Zealand and what we could do as a country to keep the homecomers home. Coming Home was brought to you by The Spin-Off and Kiwi Bank. It was presented by me, Jane Yee. And me, Duncan Grieve. It was produced, edited and mixed by Claire Crofton. Thanks to RNZ for allowing us to use the archive news audio we've included in this episode. And shout out to Tina Tiller and Josie Adams for recording and helping us with interviews. And to Alice Webladall and Sherry Zhang. And to Lucy Raymer, of course, for booking out interviewees. She's an organisational genius. And of course, if you're liking this series, don't forget to subscribe to get the next one and tell all your friends. Kia ora e te iwi, te Aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.